Hey internet, I'm Simon Squibb, your host at the Good Luck Club. I believe luck is an ingredient that's necessary for a successful life. Whatever you're starting, building or shipping, I'm here to tell you, without luck, you're not going to make it. I've been testing my luck as an entrepreneur since I was 15 years old. I've had plenty of failures and successes. And I'm fascinated by the things I couldn't control. The moments that made my career and the ones that threatened to end it. In each episode, I'll invite a guest to share their stories about luck, the good and bad. And together, we'll test my theory about luck's role. My guest today is entrepreneur Ian James. He's the co-founder of the brand Melrose and Morgan. Melrose and Morgan is a modern grocer and kitchen with two shops in Primrose Hill and Hampstead Village in North London. I visit both of these stores frequently and I'm a big fan of the amazing brand he's created. For him, he tells me, local shops should be at the heart of the community. He has a passion for supporting local bakers, fishmongers and butchers and other independent retailers and is committed to championing small-scale artisan producers through his shops and online stores. Ian has been focused on making his retail dream come true for the last 15 years. Working on any business, even your own, for 15 years ain't easy. And he will share some of the highs and lows and lessons learned along the way with us today. Welcome Ian. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. No problem. Well, I thought we'd uh, start off the podcast. I always like to ask this question first. You know, I would say success is so important, but what, what is success to you? Success. It's that thing we're always trying to grasp. Success is sometimes just getting to the end of the day and feeling like you know, you've, you've achieved something. Success in the long run, maybe we start out with some, some ambitions at the start of our life. We try to get to, we're trying to head along that path to get to that point, but maybe we never reach them. I think one needs to sort of continually reassess what success means to you. Um, and it does mean different things at different times in your life, perhaps. Mm. What success is when you're a young person is probably different to what I would say it is now. Mm. For me now, I'm in my mid-50s, so I've had a, a good part of my working life. I've hopefully got a pretty good part of it still to go. I think now success is finishing the job that I, I set out, started to do 15 years ago. And by finishing it, I mean probably, hopefully exiting that business in the next few years' time. And it to have been, um, it to that business to continue after I left it, that would be really important to me. Mm. And once that's happened, I think whatever I try to do after that, my success will be based around what I personally want to achieve. And I don't think it will necessarily be from a financial perspective. I think a lot of people think that success and finance or financial reward is, is sort of go hand in hand together. But of course it can, as we all know, it can be success can be um, self-satisfaction. It can be doing good. It can be um, making a difference, all of these things. So jumping ahead to a few years time if I'm not still on the journey, current journey then I'll hopefully be making a small difference with the time that I've got left um, in my working life mm. whatever that means I don't quite know what that is yet just yet mm. Mm. I, I actually think that's a really interesting insight there you've kind of highlighted that success can change over time what it, what it means to you yeah because i agree with you I, I mean i speak to a lot of young people and it seems that like success is about some financial goal yeah. and i don't know when that changes i mean when i was younger i was like were you like that when you were young actually probably not no i think 
Initially, I had a passion when I was growing, um, when I was younger. Um, I had a passion, and it was um, the arts world, um, and I threw myself into that. Um, and for me, the satisfaction I got through being around artists, theatre practitioners, choreographers, and all that sort of thing was more than enough reward. I didn't need the financial reward. And to be honest, I was working in a sector which where financial reward was wasn't part and part, part and parcel of it unless you went into a commercial um, into the commercial side it's probably slightly different now but this is back in the early 80s when we were uh, the arts world in this country was predominantly government sub, um, subsidized so you know the, the the pot of money was a fairly small pot of money and the pot of money was about making the product and the product was a piece of work so financial reward for me um, if that's what it'd been about I'd have given this up this particular journey that I'm on probably a long time ago I should have given it up a long time ago if the money side was important mm. again I find that fascinating because I come from a different angle I mean I, I left home at 15 mm. and had to survive had to eat so money yeah. became an important part of like survival yeah. do you think your upbringing had something to do with this um, ability to move aside the need for or drive around money. I, I needed to earn a living. Obviously, I needed work. Um, so I was, I, I've always been in work. I've always had a job. No, I, I come from a very normal background. My parents were both teachers. You know, well, so there's a profession that people do not for the money. Yeah, as well, completely. Right? So you've definitely completely. picked up something there. Possibly. Parents, yeah. Yeah. Although I certainly knew I never wanted to be a teacher, uh, having lived with them, been brought up by them. I, I think that was rallying against the idea that I'd worked in a subsidised sector for maybe 15, 16, 17 years of my life, where you applied for a grant or you're on a three-year grant basis. Whenever you'd apply, you'd send your application in and you'd get your money um, and you'd sort of get on and create your work. You also look for sponsorship and things like that. I did a sponsorship deal with Saab back in the 80s for a company I was working with, which involved them giving us... I think it was three brand new Saabs to, to go on, on the road with um, and work with these cars in a performance um, environment. Mm. You have to be entrepreneurial within the arts sector. Mm, of course. Um, Bit of a hustle there. Yeah. And actually, the last job I had in the arts sector certainly required that because the company wasn't funded. It had a history of... Um, receiving funds and it stopped receiving funds government funds um, and we had to find another way and we came across a building in the east end of London um, and it was owned by the London Docklands Development Corporation this is back again in the 80s when the whole Canary Wharf thing was just you know, coming up from the ground um, and it was an old power station and we found it and we put on a piece of work there and we started discussing whether we could obtain the building from the corporation it had an arts remit and so we started that, that negotiation and eventually got it but we didn't have any money to do it so we what it did have it had a parcel of land at the back of it so we got planning permission to build a block of 20 flats on it and suddenly we had an asset in addition to the building itself that we could potentially sell whatever it was one million pounds at the time which seemed like a huge amount of money allowed us to renovate and restore the building and to open it so yeah so that entrepreneurial so that probably started there but I got a little bit fed up of still working within the confines of that sort of um, that that, that subsidised what was essentially a subsidised sector and I thought okay I want to try to 
create something myself that can stand up on its own two feet. And I knew that probably wouldn't exist within the arts world. Um, so you have to go into the commercial world. And that's where the current journey started. So, so you, you left the arts uh, organisation you were with and yes. you, you started Melrose Morgan. Yeah, about a year later. Right. Okay. So, so you I had a year where you were planning what you wanted yeah, to do? Or? Yeah. Okay. I, it was a year when I, I, I suppose that we'd got to or I'd got to a point within that particular I'd done seven years there um, I'd got to a point where it's like actually I need to do something for myself now and I stopped working and I managed to survive for a year without having any you know, proper employment I did a bit of travelling you know you go off and find yourself all those sort of things didn't really know what I was going to do I knew I wanted to do something but wasn't sure what I was going to do so I went off on this little journey thinking I'd find out what I would, do, would want to do came back and it yeah probably a year or so after actually a year or so after we probably made our first offer on our first site for Melrose and Morgan and it was probably about another nine months before we actually opened the business in another site because that first site didn't didn't work out. Where was the first site? Um, the first site was in Columbia Road in East London. So it what was the second going. site where did you actually open up first? Um, first site we didn't open was Columbia Road. Then we saw another site in St John Street, in, again over in um, Farringdon Way. And then Nick, my partner, um, was in the process of selling his business. He was a commercial, uh, he was an agent for commercial photographers. Um, and he was having he'd sort of done the deal signed, yeah, went right out for a celebratory drink and uh, he went to a pub in Primrose Hill with um, the new team walked out and was, um, opposite the pub was uh, an empty shop unit and he said to let sign the window and he said oh he found it he said oh, I think I found our shop so did you come up with the idea together how did, how did the idea become um, reality it was probably quite a long process over a number of years that then sort of crystallised over a 12-month period. Yeah, it was together, very much. He had a food background. I had a food background partly within the arts world. Um, I'd opened a restaurant in the big building in uh, East London, the 80 cover restaurant. This was the time when the British food movement was just starting to really sort of change gear and seasonality, provenance, organic, all of those things were suddenly becoming the forefront of, of, of a certain market's mind I'd say so yeah we did create the idea together although originally it was probably more around being a restaurant and then we decided that actually we didn't want to work till one or two o'clock in the morning we get to a certain point in our lives we're in the early 40s I know what let's open a shop it's in retail um, it would be so much easier ah. and oh yes <laughs> And then we started on a journey 15 years ago. Then we opened a second site in 2010 in Hampstead, again, very close to where we are, our original site. And we still exist there today. When you were coming up with the idea, mm. did you have it like, crystal clear when you launched? Or was it, OK, I've got an idea, let's open it and evolve it over time? Which way did you go? No, I think it was crystal clear at the time. However, any business naturally evolves. And over you know, 15 years, it evolves a lot I don't think I'm not sure there are many um, businesses that don't evolve you know over that period of time um, and particularly in the food world 
I mean, the, the, the changes that have happened again, as I say, in the food world over the last, it, it, yeah, it's sort of meteoric. Mm. You know, we've got celebrity chefs, we've got restaurants opening and closing, and you know, food courts opening and closing, and um, different styles of food, different. Um, yeah, operators. It's 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 a big it's a big field now. Mm, totally. And I, I always preach to people about how good it can be to have a co-founder. It, and of course, it comes with its challenges too, because you can have a lot of differences of opinions. What, what's your experience? In fifteen years, you've been mm, working together. Yeah, and we I mean, married two years ago as well. Right. Wow. So, so you worked and we've, we've lived together. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. That's. Yeah. Um, I. I, I <laughs> Yeah, I think I've actually had a similar experience. Yeah, I worked for exactly. ten years with my partner, yeah. but you know, I have my opinion on it. But how, how do you uh, I see it? Think that I don't want to preempt your question, but you have. I know that you've asked me um, what was your lucky break, and I think my lucky break was probably meeting Nick because in finding. And this came later in, in our relationship, but in finding someone that you can work with that is has the same aspirations as you, that has the same ethos as you, um, that is willing to um, stand by you in a work environment or a business environment, no matter what, that's that's fairly rare. And, and be your friend <laughs> um, and partner through all of that away from work is is fair is is fairly rare. I think so. Do, that, do you, you that's my lucky break. That, I think that's a wonderful lucky break. Do you, do you think how hard is it to separate life and work, or is or is it don't separate it? Or um, would you, the advice be you learn how to do it. You, you can't. I think initially, and in if, if if that's how you begin a business, or. Partway through a business, you, you join it with your partner, and they become part of the business. Um, it's yeah, it's challenging to begin with. Naturally, um, you know, you have to learn how to um, operate, how to respect each other. I think respect is the biggest thing. Respecting each other when you're together, but also respecting each other when you're with your work colleagues as well. Mm, that's true. That's a really, really, really important part. I've been, there have been times when I've not achieved that, mm. and that probably likewise for Nick. But you know that is the one thing that you've you've got to maintain that respect. I, I always say to people because, like you, I work with my partner. You also learn so much about your partner yeah. by working with them. I think when you work with someone, this almost you almost the real person is there yeah, often, or, or at least a certain is what's and all. Moral code, for example, comes up. You know, you really find out uh, how someone really is when it comes down to money yeah. and paying a bill or not. For Completely. example, you know, I, I, I was always in awe of my partner when she'd be like, "We've got yeah. to pay our people. Yeah. We've got to make sure we pay our suppliers, yeah. and we will be paid last." And yeah. that was always her ethos. And I learned what a good person she yeah. was. By working that way, yeah. I don't know, you know, yeah, completely, the same experience. yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that you you do understand each other, um, yeah, more and more as each day goes by. Um, but also, you, you know, you if you're going into business with your partner, then you've got that that other person's got to have certain gifts or talents um, or skills that you don't have, and to marry those up. You know, it doesn't always work like that, I'm sure. But you know, Nick has a certain skill set that I don't have, right. and I've got a certain skill set that he doesn't have. Right. Actually, and that's I, I think that's a really good point too. If anyone listening today is thinking of starting a business with a partner, I think the thing I've noticed for myself, and it sounds like you had the similar mm-hmm. experiences, try to have different areas that you're managing yeah. so you can 
advise each other on each other's yeah. areas, but you also have your own area in which to, to operate in and, and be free to operate in. And, you know, Nick is a, a very creative person. I like to think that I'm a relatively creative person, but, you know, he's given me the scope to look after a certain area of the business which is creative he's still got his area which he can be creative within but um, again it's, it's allowing each other to grow and um, shine I suppose mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the areas that they want to or feel that they, they, they can do something mm-hmm. two of you can't you can't have two marketeers you know, we're well, a marketing business, maybe, but yeah, I, I, yeah, we'll sit for clients perhaps. Sure. Right? I, I, yeah, do you know what I mean? Directly, yeah, where well, your function is purely yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the same thing. I, if I, we were I, both, you, you, know, you can't have two cooks in the kitchen, mm. Mm. you know, Nick's the cook, I'm not the cook, mm. you know. Um, so yeah, no, oh, I didn't actually know you got married two years ago, so yeah, congratulations. Yeah. Um, you mentioned there the good luck. But what about mm. bad luck? Do you think like there's been? See, luck is a funny word, and I, if anyone says "oh luck" to me, I say oh, I, I, I've been fortunate. I've been unfortunate. Luck seems to me something that is completely out of your control. And I maybe I'm a control freak. I like to think that I've got everything under control. Of course, we don't always have everything under control. So bad luck, been the odd thing, but. N- Nothing terrible. Listen, we're not at the top of our game. Um, we're not um, world leaders or anything like that. We've just sort of managed to survive and get through. Um, and when you when, when a knock comes along, be it bad luck or your own fault, um, you just got to get on and get through it. I think it's interesting, isn't it? I've, I, I, I've interviewed quite a lot of people when I ask about bad luck. Mm. People don't like to find it hard to articulate what bad luck actually might mean so for example I I, I, uh, invested in the crowdfunding campaign that you did um, which had a lot of interest people a lot of people really um, behind you customers in particular were really behind that campaign but um you didn't quite reach no. it just short by a small amount but you didn't quite reach it and the rules of crowdfunding are you have to reach the full amount to, get that, to make that kick in yeah. personally I was disappointed I was looking forward to being an investor yeah. in the business but yeah. the um, you know that, that some might say is, is slightly bad luck right? I, before we met I had thought of that as, a, as, a, um, as a, an example of bad luck that we've you know the business has um, experienced and then you know I look at it and think well actually you know it was the wrong place at the wrong time you know and, we're still, you know, we're still going. We've, we're still looking to grow, um, and you know, we're doing it in another way. And maybe we rushed into that in um, what wasn't we thought was an opportunity too quickly. Maybe we, I think bad luck's come. Bad luck comes when you don't sort of plan far enough ahead, or you plan for all eventualities. Mm-hmm. No, no, I, I think I think there's another element here that you're uncovering, which I find interesting. What I've noticed when interviewing entrepreneurs mm. is that, that there seems to be a tendency to look at bad luck as almost like a learning experience. Mm-hmm. So something happened there, we can do better next time. Yeah. So as opposed to, I think people, sometimes when people give up on the business or it doesn't work, I've had people say, oh, we started during a financial crisis. Yeah. We were unlucky. As opposed to saying, we got through the financial crisis, mm-hmm. this is how we adapted, we survived. But next time, you know, when a financial crisis comes, we're going to do better. Yeah. So I, I feel like entrepreneurs tend to reframe things and, mm. and not almost accept that it was bad luck, more like my own fault yeah. uh, or something I can do better next time. I don't know if entrepreneurs are sort of so um, bloody-minded that they almost think they're never going to fail anyway, so they will, they will always 
find the solution to the problem yeah. that, that, that comes along. Do, do you think entrepreneurs are born or bred? Probably born. Probably. But do you think you were born an entrepreneur? Because I, I, you strike me as someone probably... I mean, first of all, artists can be entrepreneurs and art. Oh, completely. So I don't want to typecast, but it's, no. it's, you know, you, 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 I can see you doing very well uh, in the creative scene that yeah. isn't necessarily an entrepreneur's life because no. my partner is creative yeah. and she actually hates the business side. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know, the, the financial uh, cash flow management, yeah. for example, which entrepreneurs have to learn. Yeah. Um, you know, that's no fun. Yeah. No, I just want to make stuff, right? Yeah. So yeah. That, that you come across as someone who likes to do stuff, make stuff in the business I do, side. But, but I, I love the business I, I, um, I love that business and I, I can did you always love it um, I probably love it more now it's my own right because you know I, I like de- I love detail um, yeah and sort of having that tenacity just to keep looking through and sort of delving deeper into a spreadsheet or a plan or a product or whatever it is um, well, wonderful, Ian. Thank you so much. You. So I think uh, to conclude today, some great insights. Listen to people's advice, but take it with a pinch of salt. I think always follow through with your passions and dreams. Ian's certainly doing that. 15 years he's been pushing forward his dream and maybe defining success as just finishing the project you're on. I think Ian has great insights today. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure, Ian. Thank you.